0: Book Fourteen Part One of The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred john Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book Fourteen. A.D. fifty nine to sixty two part one. Nero murders his mother. In the year of the consulship of Caius Vipstanus and Caius Fontius, Nero deferred no more a long meditated crime. Length of power had matured his daring, and his passion for Poppaea daily grew more ardent. As the woman had no hope of marriage for herself. Or of Octavia's divorce while Agrippina lived, she would reproach the emperor with incessant vituperation and sometimes call him in jest a mere ward who was under the rule of others, and was so far from having empire that he had not even his liberty. Why, she asked, was her marriage put off? Was it, forsooth, her beauty and her ancestors, with their triumphal honors, that failed to please? Or her being a mother and her sincere heart? No, the fear was that, as a wife, at least she would divulge the wrongs of the Senate, and the wrath of the people at the arrogance and rapacity of his mother. If the only daughter-in-law Agrippina could bear was one who wished evil to her son, let her be restored to her union with Otho. She would go anywhere in the world where she might hear of the insults heaped on the emperor, rather than witness them, and be also involved in the perils. These and the like complaints, rendered impressive by tears, and by the cunning of an adulteress, no one checked, as all longed to see the mother's power broken, while not a person believed that the son's hatred would steal his heart to her murder. Cluvius relates that Agrippina, in her eagerness to retain her influence, went so far that more than once at midday, when Nero, even at that hour, was flushed with wine and feasting, she presented herself attractively attired to her half intoxicated son and offered him her person and that when kinsfolk observed wanton kisses and caresses portending infamy it was seneca who sought a female's aid against a woman's fascinations and hurried in acti the freed girl who alarmed at her own peril and at nero's disgrace told him that the incest was notorious as his mother boasted of it and that the soldiers would never endure the rule of an impious sovereign. Fabius Rusticus tells us that it was not Agrippina, but Nero, who lusted for the crime, and that it was frustrated by the adroitness of that same freed girl. Cluvius's account, however, is also that of all other authors, and a popular belief inclines to it, whether it was that Agrippina really conceived such a monstrous wickedness in her heart, or perhaps because the thought of a strange passion seemed comparatively credible in a woman, who in her girlish years had allowed herself to be seduced by Lepidus, in the hope of winning power, had stooped with a like ambition to the lust of Pallas, and had trained herself for every infamy by her marriage with her uncle. Nero accordingly avoided secret interviews with her, and when she withdrew to her gardens or to her estates at Tusculum and Ansham, he praised her for courting repose. At last, convinced that she would be too formidable, wherever she might dwell, he resolved to destroy her, merely deliberating whether it was to be accomplished by poison, or by the sword, or by any other violent means. Poison at first seemed best, but, were it to be administered at the imperial table, the result could not be referred to chance after the recent circumstances of the death of Britannicus. Again, to tamper with the servants of a woman who, from her familiarity with crime, was on her guard against treachery, appeared to be extremely difficult, and then, too, she had fortified her constitution by the use of antidotes. How again the dagger and its work were to be kept secret, no one could suggest, and it was feared, too, that whoever might be chosen to execute such a crime would spurn the order. An ingenious suggestion was offered by Anicetus, a freedman, commander of the fleet at Mycenaeum, who had been tutor to Nero in boyhood, and had a hatred of Agrippina, which she reciprocated. He explained that a vessel could be constructed, from which a part might, by a contrivance, be detached when out at sea, so as to plunge her unawares into the water. "'Nothing,' he said, allowed of accidents so much as the sea.' and should she be overtaken by shipwreck, who would be so unfair as to impute to crime an offense committed by the winds and waves? The emperor would add the honor of a temple, and of shrines to the deceased ladies, with every other display of filial affection. Nero liked the device, favored as it was also by the particular time, for he was celebrating Minerva's 5 days festivals at Beyi, Thither he enticed his mother, by repeated assurances, that children ought to bear with the irritability of parents, and to soothe their tempers, wishing thus to spread a rumor of reconciliation, and to secure Agrippina's acceptance through the feminine credulity, which easily believes what joy. As she approached, he went to the shore to meet her, she was coming from Anshim, welcomed her with outstretched hand in embrace, and conducted her to Bowley. This was the name of a country-house, washed by a bay of the sea, between the promontory of Mycenaeum and the lake of Bayi. Here was a vessel distinguished from others by its equipment, seemingly meant, among other things, to do honour to his mother, for she had been accustomed to sail in a trireme with a crew of marines, and now she was invited to a banquet, that night might serve to conceal the crime. It was well known that somebody had been found to betray it, that Agrippina had heard of the plot, and, in doubt whether she was to believe it, was conveyed to Beyi in her litter. There some soothing words allayed her fear. She was graciously received, and seated at table above the emperor. Nero prolonged the banquet with various conversation, passing from a youth's playful familiarity to an air of constraint, which seemed to indicate serious thought and then, after protracted festivity, escorted her on her departure, clinging with kisses to her eyes and bosom, either to crown his hypocrisy, or because the last sight of a mother on the even of destruction caused a lingering even in that brutal heart. A night of brilliant starlight, with the calm of a tranquil sea, was granted by heaven seemingly to convict the crime. The vessel had not gone far— Agrippina having with her two of her intimate attendants, one of whom, Creparius Gallus, stood near the helm, while Aceronia, reclining at Agrippina's feet as she reposed herself, spoke joyfully of her son's repentance, and of the recovery of the mother's influence, when, at a given signal, the ceiling of the place, which was loaded with a quantity of lead, fell in, and Creparius was crushed and instantly killed. Agrippina and Aceronia were protected by the projecting sides of the couch, which happened to be too strong to yield under the weight. But this was not followed by the breaking up of the vessel, for all were bewildered, and those two who were in the plot were hindered by the unconscious majority. The crew then thought it best to throw the vessel on one side and so sink it, but they could not themselves promptly unite to face the emergency and others, by counteracting the attempt, gave an opportunity of a gentler fall into the sea. Aceronia, however, thoughtlessly exclaiming that she was Agrippina, and imploring help for the emperor's mother, was dispatched with poles and oars, and such naval implements as chance offered. Agrippina was silent, and was thus the less recognized. Still, she received a wound in her shoulder she swam, then met with some small boats which conveyed her to Lucrine Lake, and so entered her house. There she reflected how, for this very purpose, she had been invited by a lying letter, and treated with conspicuous honor, how also it was near the shore, not from being driven by winds or dashed on rocks, that the vessel had in its upper part collapsed, like a mechanism anything but nautical. She pondered, too, the death of Aseronia, she looked at her own wound, and saw that her only safeguard against treachery was to ignore it. Then she sent her freedman, Agerinus, to tell her son how, by heaven's favor and his good fortune, she had escaped a terrible disaster, that she begged him, alarmed as he might be, by his mother's peril, to put off the duty of a visit, as for the present she needed repose meanwhile pretending that she felt secure she applied remedies to her wound and fomentations to her person she then ordered search to be made for the will of aseronia and her property to be sealed in this alone throwing off disguise nero meantime as he waited for tidings of the consummation of the deed received information that she had escaped with the injury of a slight wound After having so far encountered the peril that there could be no question as to its author, then paralyzed with terror, and protesting that she would show herself the next moment eager for vengeance either arming the slaves or stirring up the soldiery, or hastening to the senate and the people to charge him with the wreck, with her wound, and with the destruction of her friends, he asked what resource he had against all this, unless something could be at once devised by Burrus and Seneca. He had instantly summoned both of them, and possibly they were already in the secret. There was a long silence on their part. They feared they might remonstrate in vain, or believe the crisis to be such that Nero must perish, unless Agrippina were at once crushed. Thereupon Seneca was so far the more prompt as to glance back on Burrus, as if to ask him whether the bloody deed must be required of the soldiers. Burrus replied that The praetorians were attached to the whole family of the Caesars, and remembering Germanicus would not dare a savage deed on his offspring. It was for Anicetus to accomplish his purpose. Anicetus, without a pause, claimed for himself the consummation of the crime. At those words, Nero declared that that day gave him empire, and that a freedman was the author of this mighty boon. Go, he said with all speed, and take with you the men readiest to execute your orders. He himself, when he had heard of the arrival of Agrippina's messenger, Agerinus, contrived a theatrical mode of accusation, and, while the man was repeating his message, threw down a sword at his feet, then ordered him to be put in irons, as a detected criminal, so that he might invent a story how his mother had plotted the emperor's destruction and in the shame of discovered guilt, had by her own choice sought death. Meantime, Agrippina's peril being universally known, and taken to be an accidental occurrence, everybody, the moment he heard of it, hurried down to the beach. Some climbed projecting piers, some the nearest vessels. Others, as far as their stature allowed, went into the sea. Some, again, stood with outstretched arms, while the whole shore rung with wailings, with prayers and cries, as different questions were asked and uncertain answers given. A vast multitude streamed to the spot with torches, and as soon as all knew that she was safe, they at once prepared to wish her joy, till the sight of an armed and threatening force scared them away. Anacetus then surrounded the house with a guard, and, having burst open the gates, dragged off the slaves who met him, till he came to the door of her chamber, where a few stood still, after the rest had fled in terror at the attack. A small lamp was in the room, and one slave-girl with Agrippina, who grew more and more anxious, as no messenger came from her son, not even Agerinus. While the appearance of the shore was changed, a solitude one moment, then sudden bustle and tokens of the worst catastrophe. As the girl rose to depart, she exclaimed, do you too forsake me and looking round saw Anicetus, who had with him the captain of the trireme herculeus and oberidus a centurion of marines if said she you have come to see me take back word that i have recovered but if you are here to do a crime i believe nothing about my son he has not ordered his mother's murder the assassins closed in round her couch and the captain of the trireme first struck her head violently with a club. Then, as the centurion bared his sword for the fatal deed presenting her person, she exclaimed, "'Smite my womb!' and with many wounds she was slain. So far our counts agree, that Nero gazed on his mother after her death and praised her beauty, some have related, while others deny it. Her body was burnt that same night on a dining couch, with a mean funeral. Nor, as long as Nero was in power, was the earth raised into a mound, or even decently closed. Subsequently she received from the solicitude of her domestics a humble sepulchre on the road to Mycenaeum, near the country-house of Caesar the Dictator, which from a great height commands a view of the bay beneath. As soon as the funeral pile was lighted, one of her freedmen, surnamed Nestor, ran himself through with the sword, either from love of his mistress, or from the fear of destruction. Many years before, Agrippina had anticipated this end for herself, and had spurned the thought. For, when she consulted the astrologers about Nero, they replied that he would be emperor and kill his mother. Let him kill her, she said, provided he is emperor. But the emperor, when the crime was at last accomplished, realized its portentous guilt. The rest of the night, now silent and stupefied, now and still oftener starting up in terror, bereft of reason, he awaited the dawn as if it would bring with him his doom. He was first encouraged to hope by the flattery addressed to him, at the prompting of Burris, by the centurions and tribunes, who again and again pressed his hand and congratulated him on his having escaped an unforeseen danger and his mother's daring crime. Then his friends went to the temples, and, an example having once been set, the neighboring towns of Campania testified their joy with sacrifices and deputations. He himself, with an opposite phase of hypocrisy, seemed sad, and almost angry at his own deliverance, and shed tears over his mother's death. But as the aspects of places change not, as do the looks of men, And as he had ever before his eyes the dreadful sight of that sea with its shores (some, too, believed that the notes of a funereal trumpet were heard from the surrounding heights, and wailings from the mother's grave) he retired to Neapolis and sent a letter to the senate, the drift of which was that Agerinus, one of Agrippina's confidential freedmen, had been detected with the dagger of an assassin, and that in the consciousness of having planned the crime she had paid its penalty. He even revived the charges of a period long past, how she had aimed at a share of empire, and at inducing the praetorian cohorts to swear obedience to a woman, to the disgrace of the senate and people, how, when she was disappointed, in her fury with the soldiers, the senate, and the populace, she opposed the usual donative and largess, and organized perilous prosecutions against distinguished citizens what efforts had it cost him to hinder her from bursting into the senate-house and giving answers to foreign nations he glanced too with indirect censure at the days of claudius and described all the abominations of that reign to his mother thus seeking to show that it was the state's good fortune which had destroyed her for he actually told the story of the shipwreck but who could be so stupid as to believe that it was accidental or that a shipwrecked woman had sent one man with a weapon to break through an emperor's guards and fleets. So now it was not Nero, whose brutality was far beyond any remonstrance, but Seneca, who was in ill repute, for having written a confession in such a style. Still there was a marvelous rivalry among the nobles in decreeing thanksgivings at all the shrines, and the celebration with annual games of Minerva's festival as the day on which the plot had been discovered. Also, that a golden image of Minerva, with the statue of the emperor by its side, should be set up in the Senate house, and that Acropina's birthday should be classed among the inauspicious days. Thracius Petus, who had been used to pass over previous flatteries in silence or with brief assent, then walked out of the Senate, thereby imperiling himself, without communicating to the other senators any impulse towards freedom. There occurred, too, a thick succession of portents, which meant nothing. A woman gave birth to a snake, and another was killed by a thunderbolt in her husband's embrace. Then the sun was suddenly darkened, and the fourteen districts of the city were struck by lightning. All this happened quite without any providential design, so much so, that for many subsequent years Nero prolonged his reign and his crimes. Still, to deepen the popular hatred towards his mother, and prove that since her removal his clemency had increased, he restored to their ancestral homes two distinguished ladies, Junia and Calpurnia, with two ex-praetors, Valerius Capito and Lucinius Gabalus, whom Agrippina had formerly banished he also allowed the ashes of Lalia Polina to be brought back and a tomb to be built over them. Aeturius and Calvitius, whom he had himself temporarily exiled, he now released from their penalty. Silana, indeed, had died a natural death at Tarentum, whither she had returned from her distant exile, when the power of Agrippina, to whose enmity she owed her fall, began to totter, or her wrath was at last appeased. While Nero was lingering in the towns of Campania, doubting how he should enter Rome, whether he would find the Senate submissive and the populace enthusiastic, all the vilest courtiers, and of these never had a court a more abundant crop, argued against his hesitation by assuring him that Agrippina's name was hated, and that her death had heightened his popularity. He might go without a fear, they said, and experience in his person men's veneration for him. They insisted at the same time on preceding him. They found greater enthusiasm than they had promised, the tribes coming forth to meet him, the senate in holiday attire, troops of their children and wives arranged according to sex and age, tiers of seats raised for the spectacle where he was to pass, as a triumph is witnessed. Thus elated and exulting over his people's slavery, he proceeded to the capital, performed the thanksgiving, and then plunged into all the excesses, which, though ill-restrained, some sort of respect for his mother had for a while delayed. He had long had a fancy for driving a four-horse chariot, and a no less degrading taste for singing to the harp, in a theatrical fashion, when he was at dinner. This he would remind people was a royal custom and had been the practice of ancient chiefs. It was celebrated, too, in the praises of poets, and was meant to show honor to the gods. Songs, indeed, he said, were sacred to Apollo, and it was in the dress of a singer that that great and prophetic deity was seen in Roman temples as well as in Greek cities. He could no longer be restrained, when Seneca and Burrus thought it best to concede one point that he might not persist in both. A space was enclosed in the Vatican Valley, where he might manage his horses, without the spectacle being public. Soon he actually invited all the people of Rome, who extolled him in their praises, like a mob which craves for amusements, and rejoices when a prince draws them the same way. However, the public exposure of his shame acted on him as an incentive, instead of sickening him, as men expected. Imagining that he mitigated the scandal by disgracing many others, he brought on the stage descendants of noble families, who sold themselves because they were paupers. As they have ended their days, I think it due to their ancestors not to hand down their names. And indeed, the infamy is his who gave them wealth to reward their degradation, rather than to deter them from degrading themselves. He prevailed, too, on some well-known Roman knights, by immense presence, to offer their services in the amphitheatre, only pay from one who was able to command carries with it the force of compulsion. Still, not yet wishing to disgrace himself on a public stage, he instituted some games under the title of juvenile sports, for which people of every class gave in their names. Neither rank nor age nor previous high promotion hindered anyone from practicing the art of a Greek or Latin actor, and even stooping to gestures and songs unfit for a man. Noble ladies, too, actually played disgusting parts, and in the grove with which Augustus had surrounded the lake for the naval fight, there were erected places for meeting and refreshment, and every incentive to excess was offered for sale. Money, too, was distributed, which the respectable had to spend under sheer compulsion, and which the profligate gloried in squandering hence a rank growth of abominations and of all infamy. Never did a more filthy rabble add a worse licentiousness to our long-corrupted morals. Even, with virtuous training, purity is not easily upheld. Far less amid rivalries and vice could modesty or propriety or any trace of good manners be preserved. Last of all, the emperor himself came on the stage, tuning his lute with elaborate care, and trying his voice with his attendants. There were also present, to complete the show, a guard of soldiers with centurions and tribunes, and Burris, who grieved and yet applauded. Then it was that Roman knights were first enrolled under the title of Augustani, men in their prime and remarkable for their strength, some from a natural frivolity, others from the hope of promotion. Day and night they kept up a thunder of applause, and applied to the emperor's person and voice the epithets of deities. Thus they lived in fame and honor, as if on the strength of their merits. Nero, however, that he might not be known only for his accomplishments as an actor, also affected a taste for poetry, and drew round him persons who had some skill in such compositions, but not yet generally recognized. They used to sit with him, stringing together verses prepared at home, or extemporized on the spot, and fill up his own expressions such as they were just as he threw them off. This is plainly shown by the very character of the poems, which have no vigor or inspiration, or unity in their flow. He would also bestow some leisure after his banquets on the teachers of philosophy, for he enjoyed the wrangles of opposing dogmatists, and some there were, who liked to exhibit their gloomy faces and looks, as one of the amusements of the court. About the same time, a trifling beginning led to a frightful bloodshed between the inhabitants of Syria and Pompeii, at a gladiatorial show exhibited by Levinnaeus Regulus, who had been, as I have related, expelled from the Senate. With the unruly spirit of townsfolk, they began with abusive language of each other, then they took up stones, and at last weapons, the advantage resting with the populace of Pompeii, where the show was being exhibited. And so there were brought to Rome a number of the people of New Syria with their bodies mutilated by wounds, and many limited the deaths of children or of parents. The emperor entrusted the trial of the case to the senate, and the senate to the consuls, and then again the matter being referred back to the senators, the inhabitants of Pompeii were forbidden to have any such public gathering for ten years, and all associations they had formed in defiance of the laws were dissolved. Libanaeus and the others who had excited the disturbance were punished with exile. Pedius Glesus was also expelled from the senate on the accusation of the people of Cyrene that he had violated the treasure of Aesculapius, and had tampered with a military levy by bribery and corruption. This same people prosecuted Asilius Strabo, who had held the office of Praetor, and had been sent by Claudius to adjudicate on some lands which were bequeathed by King Appion, their former possessor, together with his kingdom to the Roman people, and which had been seized by the neighboring proprietors, who trusted to a long-continued license and wrong as if it constituted right and justice. Consequently, when the adjudication was against them, there arose a bitter feeling towards the judge, but the senate replied that they knew nothing of the instructions given by Claudius, and that the emperor must be consulted. Nero, though he approved Strabo's decision, wrote word that nevertheless he was for relieving the allies, and that he waived all claim to what had been taken into possession." Then followed the deaths of two illustrious men, Domitius Afer and Marcus Servilius, who had flourished through a career of the highest honors and great eloquence. The first was a pleader, Servilius, after long practice in the courts, distinguished himself by his history of Rome, and by the refinement of his life, which the contrast of his character to that of Afer, whom he equalled in genius, rendered the more conspicuous. In Nero's fourth consulship, with Cornelius Cossus for his colleague, a theatrical entertainment, to be repeated every five years, was established at Rome in imitation of the Greek festival. Like all novelties, it was variously canvassed. There were some who declared that even Gnaeus Pompeius was censured by the older men of the day for having set up a fixed and permanent theatre. Formerly, they said, The games were usually exhibited with hastily erected tiers of benches, and a temporary stage, and the people stood to witness them, that they might not, by having the chance of sitting down, spend a succession of entire days in idleness. Let the ancient character of these shows be retained, whenever the praetors exhibited them, and let no citizen be under the necessity of competing. As it was, the morality of their fathers, which had by degrees been forgotten, was utterly subverted by the introduction of a lax tone, so that all which could suffer or produce corruption was to be seen at Rome, and a degeneracy bred by foreign tastes was infecting the youth who devoted themselves to athletic sports, to idle loungings and low intrigues, with the encouragement of the emperor and senate, who not only granted license to vice, but even applied a compulsion to drive Roman nobles into disgracing themselves on the stage, under the pretence of being orators and poets. What remained for them but to strip themselves naked, put on the boxing glove, and practise such battles instead of the arms of legitimate warfare? Would justice be promoted, or would they serve on the knight's commissions for the honourable office of a judge because they had listened with critical sagacity to effeminate strains of music and sweet voices? Knight, too, was given up to infamy so that virtue had not a moment left to her, but all the vilest of that promiscuous throng dared to do in the darkness anything they had lusted for in the day. Many people liked this very license, but they screened it under respectable names. Our ancestors, they said, were not averse to the attractions of shows, on a scale suited to the wealth of their day, and so they introduced actors from the Etruscans, and horse races from Thurii, When we had possessed ourselves of Achaea and Asia, games were exhibited with greater elaboration, and yet no one at Rome of good family had stooped to the theatrical profession during the two hundred years following the triumph of Lucius Mamius, who first displayed this kind of show in the capital. Besides, even economy had been consulted, when a permanent edifice was erected for a theatre, in preference to a structure raised and fitted up yearly at vast expense nor would the magistrates, as hitherto, exhaust their substance, or would the populace have the same motive for demanding of them the Greek contests, when once the state undertakes the expenditure. The victories won by orators and poets would furnish a stimulus to genius, and it could not be a burden for any judge to bestow his attention on graceful pursuits or on legitimate recreations. It was to mirth, rather than to profligacy, that a few nights every five years were devoted, and in these, amid such a blaze of illumination, no lawless conduct could be concealed. This entertainment, it is true, passed off without any notorious scandal. The enthusiasm, too, of the populace was not even slightly kindled, for the pantomimic actors, though permitted to return to the stage, were excluded from the sacred contests. No one gained the first prize for eloquence, but it was publicly announced that the emperor was victorious. Greek dresses, in which most people showed themselves during this festival, had then gone out of fashion. A comet, meantime, blazed in the sky, which, in popular opinion, always portends revolution to kingdoms. So people began to ask, as if Nero was already dethroned, who was to be elected. In everyone's mouth was the name of Rubelius Blandus, who inherited through his mother the high nobility of the Julian family. He was himself attached to the ideas of our ancestors, his manners were austere, his home was one of purity and seclusion, and the more he lived in retirement from fear, the more fame did he acquire. Popular talk was confirmed by an interpretation put with similar credulity on a flash of lightning, while Nero was reclining at dinner, in his house named Subloquium on the Simbruine lake, the table with the banquet was struck and shattered, and as this happened close to Tiber, from which town Plautus derived his origin on his father's side, people believed him to be the man marked out by divine providence, and he was encouraged by that numerous class, whose eager and often mistaken ambition it is to attach themselves prematurely to some new and hazardous cause. This alarmed Nero, and he wrote a letter to Plautus, bidding him consider the tranquillity of Rome, and withdraw himself from mischievous gossip. He had ancestral possessions in Asia, where he might enjoy his youth safely and quietly. And so thither Plautus retired, with his wife Antistia, and a few intimate friends. About the same time, an excessive love of luxurious gratification, involved Nero in disgrace and danger. He had plunged for a swim into the source of the stream which Quintus Marcus conveyed to Rome, and it was thought that, by thus immersing his person in it, he had polluted the sacred waters, and the sanctity of the spot. A fit of illness which followed convinced people of the divine displeasure. End of Book Fourteen, Part One